Hi, everyone, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. In this, the first session of the fourth age of Middle-earth, we find ourselves waking in the fields of Cormelan after being saved from Mount Doom by Gwaihir and by Landerval and by Menelder. We are here to finish Chapter 4 of Book 6 and then do our level best to make it through Chapter 5, The Steward and the King, one of my favorite chapters in all of The Lord of the Rings. But I don't have much hope for us uh, for th- that we will make it through that entire reading. I have pulled an infeasible number of slides, as is my way. But if we can make it to the end of the sequence with Faramir and Eowyn, then I shall count our quest complete. That's... That's actually probably my favorite part in the entire book, and certainly the part of the book that has been more elevated for me by a careful reading. I have loved Faramir, obviously, as I've said many times before, I've loved Faramir for the longest time. I love Eowyn too, of course, but reading their sequence, the sequence in chapter five of book six, more carefully than I ever have, it has opened up to me still further. I love them more now. I am more enchanted by this story, and we are going to have a lot to talk about. So with all of that said, let's uh, get right into it. Picking up on uh, Chapter 4, The Fields of Cromwell, where we dropped out last time. How do I feel? he cried. Well, I don't know how to, I, I don't know how to say it. I feel... I feel... He waved his arms in the air. I feel like spring after winter and sun on the leaves and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I've ever heard. He stopped and he turned toward his master. But... "'How's Mr. Frodo?' he said. "'Isn't it a shame about his poor hand? "'I hope he's all right otherwise. We've ha- "'He's had a cruel time.' "'Yes, I'm all right otherwise,' said Frodo, "'sitting up and laughing in his term. "'I fell asleep waiting for you, Sam, you sleepyhead. "'I'm awake. Er- "'I was awake early this morning, "'and now it must be nearly noon.' "'Noon?' said Sam, trying to calculate. "'Noon of what day?' "'The fourteenth of the new year,' said Gandalf. "'Or, if you like, the eighth day of April in the Shire Reckoning. "'But in Gondor the new year will always now begin upon the twenty-fifth of March, "'when Sauron fell, and when you were brought out of the fire to the king. "'He has tended you, and now he awaits you. "'You shall eat and drink with him. "'When you are ready, I will lead you to him.' "'The king?' said Sam. "'What king? And who is he?' "'The king of Gondor and the the lord of the western lands,' said Gandalf, "'and he has taken back all his ancient realm. "'He will ride soon to his crowning, but he waits for you.' "'What shall we wear?' said Sam, "'for all he could see were the old and tattered clothes they had journeyed in, "'lying folded on the ground beside their beds. "'The clothes you wore on your way to Mordor,' said Gandalf. "'Even the orc rags that you bore in the black land, Frodo, shall be preserved. "'No silks and linens, nor any armor or heraldry could be more honorable. "'But later I will find some other clothes, perhaps.' Then he held out his hands to them, and they saw that one shone with light. "'What have you got there?' Frodo cried. "'Can it be—' "'Yes. I have brought your two treasures. They were found on Sam when you were rescued. The Lady Galadriel's gifts. Your glass, Frodo, and your box, Sam. You will be glad to have these safe again.' And so we wake on the 14th day of the new year, the 8th of April, by Shire Reckoning. The 8th of April by the Reckoning of the Third Age, of course, though now the Gondorian New Year will always begin on March the 25th when Sauron fell. Frodo and Sam have been asleep for two weeks. It has taken them two weeks to recover their consciousness. Frodo, of course, waking earlier this morning, but still has the impertinence to call Sam a sleepyhead because Sam slept for for 14 and a half days rather than Frodo's positively conservative 14 days. But here they are well, recovered. And we can get some sense of that recovery here. It's, It's clear in all of their attributed dialogue. It is going to be somewhat textured as we continue to move through the chapter, as we continue to see well, specifically who Frodo is now, what 
the terrible rigors of his journey have done to him, who he has become in the wake of his journey into Mordor, the wake of his journey into Mount Doom, and of course, the wake of the destruction of the ring. But Sam, at least, seems to have been restored to his old self. How do I feel? Well, I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel. He waved his arms in the air. When words will not do, we will gesticulate. This is... Clearly, you can see as I'm waving my arms around constantly as I talk, but this is very much uh, uh, something that we can associate with Sam. I feel like spring after winter and sun on the leaves and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I've ever heard. He has this moment where words are insufficient to properly encapsulate his relief, his joy, his restoration. Sam is once more himself. And he describes it, of course, in very Samwise Gamgian terms. Spring after winter obviously very important to a gardener, sun on the leaves connecting him back to the natural world, and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I have ever heard, all song and poetry is our Samwise Gamgee, more now than ever. But of course that doesn't last. He can't live in that space of simple joy. He has to be elevated into that space by Gandalf's question. Of course it takes him a moment. Well, I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel the pause and then the rush, then the release. But then immediately, of course, he turns back to Mr. Frodo. But has Mr. Frodo? Isn't it a shame about his poor hand? But I hope he's all right. Otherwise, he's had a cruel time. Sam's gift for understatement there coming into play. He's had a cruel time. Yeah, Frodo has been through it. But Frodo also apparently restored. Yes, I am all right otherwise, said Frodo, sitting up and laughing in his turn. I fell asleep again waiting for you, Sam, you sleepyhead. I was awake early this morning and now it must be nearly noon. Frodo seems to be... Well, if not like his old self, he is at least once more a hobbit. He at least laughs easily. And again, we've observed this a few times before, right? We can demonstrate or, or, or understand the grown intimacy, the increased intimacy between Frodo and Sam by that very gentle teasing. Remember all the way back at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring after the conspiracy has been unmasked and we're, we're leaving the Shire and Merry and Pippin and Frodo are all quite happily teasing one another because they are of equal rank and thus teasing is not just permitted but positively encouraged as a means of fostering tighter friendships and a means of kind of demonstrating that trust and loyalty to each other, but no one teases Sam because that would be inappropriate. And we've had these moments now of late as we're crossing Mordor where Frodo can almost tease, where he can almost, almost tease Sam because they are now so profoundly intimate that their previous relationship, which was already intimate, already anchored in the love of a master for his servant and a servant for his master, it is now all the more powerful. They are closer than they've ever been. So we get a little more of this, you know, uh, jocular kind of interaction here between the two of them. Gandalf catches us up on the date and of course notes that they have been taken into the uh, into the presence of the king. Uh, but in Gondor, the new year will always begin on the 25th of March when Sauron fell and when you were brought out of the fire to the king, he has tended you and now he awaits you. They have been, of course, restored by the hands of the king, the hands of a healer. You shall eat and drink with him when you're ready. I'll lead you to him. The king? What king and who is he? It turns out that not paying very close attention to your surroundings may not just be a trait that we can associate with Pippin, right? <laughs> Pippin has been chastised by Gandalf for this in the fairly recent past, in fact. But it turns out that Sam maybe hasn't put all the clues together either. The King of Gondor and Lord of the Western Lands. Though I would also read this as... Um, as a possible sign that Sam literally doesn't know where they are. Like, they could be anywhere. What king? I assumed I was back in the Shire. I assumed that I was in Rivendell. What king could you possibly be talking about, right? No. The king, of course, of Gondor and lord of the Western Lands. He has taken back all his ancient realm. He will ride soon to his crowning, but he waits for you. 
then we have the beat about the clothing, of course, that, that the clothes that they wore into Mordor are all that they have, but are themselves sufficient. They are tokens of the great pain and peril that they have endured. It's, yeah, it's a beautiful moment, though we're going to circle back around to the... Uh, to the uh, the presentation of Frodo and Sam, I suppose, in just a couple of uh, a couple of slides time. Here's a Bart says, seems a reasonable question to me when there are multiple kings running about. Um, yes. I mean, how many kings are we dealing with here, right? How many kings is Sam aware of here? Um, none. <laughs> Grand total of zero kings, probably, right? Sam doesn't know about Theoden. Uh, I, I can't think of a king that would readily come to Sam's mind, though, of course, if he had been paying attention, going all the way back to Rivendell, right? Going all the way back to, to Bilbo's poem in, in Rivendell, even the, the verse that Gandalf leaves for them at the Prancing Pony, right? And his first interactions with Aragorn, even then, maybe Sam could have started to put the pieces together, but he has not. Sam is, as Pippin is, a very present character. And the more that we've been talking about this, the more I've been thinking of this in terms of, in terms of great virtue. Hobbits live very much anchored in the present. Men live anchored in the future. Dwarves, too, to a certain extent. That is reflected, I think, in their love of craftsmanship. And elves, of course, live in the past. Elves know that their greatest days are behind them and that they are now both diminished and diminishing. Hobbits live in the present. And that seems to be one of the special qualities of hobbitness that makes them who they are, that makes the Shire so special. They are haunted neither by fear nor regret, I suppose. They live right right here. Um, and Pete asking, is Theoden ever referred to as the king or simply Theoden king, i.e. because Aragorn is the king? Aragorn is not, technically speaking, the king of Rohan, right? He is the king of, or <laughs> well, right now he's the king of precisely nothing, but he will ultimately be the king of the reunited kingdom of Gondor in the south and Arnor in the north, right? The two halves of the, of the Numenorean kingdom. Rohan is a separate nation that uh, is bonded to Gondor through alliance and through loyalty and through love. We'll see this more clearly when we get to uh, Aragorn's conversation with Eomir after the uh, after the coronation has taken place. But yeah, we'll we'll catch up with uh, with all of that. Let's move on then, oh, well, guys. Here we go. I, I should have said yeah that uh, this is. A reading this week that is very likely to make me weep openly on the podcast. Again, if you are inclined to uh, lay wagers on such a thing, then um, yeah, Faramir and, and Eowyn is more likely. But hey, these are some pretty good moments, too. When they were washed and clad and had eaten a light meal, the hobbits followed Gandalf. They stepped out of the beech grove in which they had lain and passed onto a long green lawn glowing in sunshine, bordered by stately dark-leaved trees laden with scarlet blossom. Behind them they could hear the sound of falling water, and a stream ran down behind them between flowering banks until they came to a greenwood and lawn's foot, and passed then on under an archway of trees through which they could see the shimmer of water far away. As they came to the opening of the wood, they were surprised to see knights in bright mail and tall guards in silver and black standing there, who greeted them in honour and bowed before them, and then one blew a long trumpet, and they went on through the aisle of trees beside the singing stream. So they came to a wide green land, and beyond it was a broad river in a silver haze, out of which rose a long wooded isle, and many ships lay by its shores. But on the field where they now stood, a great host was drawn up, in ranks and companies glittering in the sun, and as hobbits approached, swords were unsheathed, and spears were shaken, and horns and trumpets sang, and men cried with many voices, and in many tongues, Long live the halflings! Praise them with great praise! Kuio i Nanan, Aglaram Ferianath! Praise them with great praise, Frodo and Samwise, Dao Raberhail, Konenen Anun, Eglerio! Praise them, Eglerio! Alaita te, Laita te, and Dav 
Latuan, oh, <laughs> got tangled up there. Laituvalement, praise them. Cormacolin. See, now I'm getting tangled. Now I'm self-aware of what I'm reading here in the Sindarin. Cormacolindor, Alaita Terinia, praise them. The ring bearers, praise them with great praise. Okay, a couple quick notes here. There are two scenes in this week's reading that I wish we got. There are two scenes that I wish Professor Tolkien had actually written for us. The first we've already skipped over, in fact. Frodo awoke this morning. Frodo awoke after 14 days of rest here at the Fields of Cormelon. Frodo awoke this morning and was reunited with Gandalf. Was reunited with Gandalf for the first time since the Bridge of Khazad-dûm, right? For the first time since the Mines of Moria, Frodo and Gandalf are reunited. What a gorgeous moment. And we never get that scene. We, we never get the, the, the hint of that scene. The second scene, which we won't really have time to talk about, I suppose, is later in the... or just to uh, correct the chronology, I suppose, earlier than this, when Faramir is told that Mary has a knowledge of the Lady Eowyn, so he goes to Mary and has a conversation about Eowyn, and we don't get that scene. It's all covered in, in less than a paragraph, but I, I really want that scene, I, because Mary and Faramir, of course, don't know each other. It would be fantastic to see that conversation. So Frodo and Gandalf and Sam have all been reunited. They emerge now, and they find themselves in this this idyll, in this this perfect environment, this this natural garden, I suppose, here um, here in in Cormelan. The um, the long aisle, the long wooded aisle that they can see. So they came to a, a a wide green land, and beyond it was a broad river and a silver haze, out of which rose a long wooded aisle, and many ships lay by its shores. So the river, of course, is the Anduin, and the long wooded aisle is Kyr Andros which was retaken by the men sent back by Aragorn as they marched toward Moran. As they, as they marched toward the Black Gate, you'll remember that the, uh, the strength and the courage of some men of the host of the West was shaken and taking mercy on them, taking pity on them, Aragorn said, no, you can salvage your honor, right? You don't have to come with us. I will command no man to walk further, but you don't have to give up your honor entirely. You don't have to flee. You can go and take Kyrandros. That would be a major play for us. And lo and behold, they do it. The ultimate point of this slide, though, is, of course, the Song of Praise, which is just lovely. Uh, in a letter to uh, Rona Beer, who was a fantastic, was an exemplary scholar of, of Professor Tolkien's work, who unfortunately died in February of this year. But in a letter to Rona Beer, the professor wrote, Quote, the Song of Praise in Volume 3, page 231, is not really a song, but is represented by a few phrases taken from the languages heard, in which English represents the common speech. The second, fourth, and sixth lines are Sindarin, or Grey Elvish. The seventh and ninth are in High Elvish. Line two means, may the halflings live long, glory to the halflings. The fourth line means, Frodo and Sam, princes of the West, glory to them, glorify them. The sixth, glorify them, glory to them. The seventh line means, bless them, bless them, long will we praise them. And the ninth line means, the ring bearers, bless or praise them to the height. So we can see in, in Westron here, rendered in English, of course, long live the halflings, praise them with great praise. And then we get our, um, uh, the, the repetition of that, right? Kui i Ferianan Anan. This is just, I'm stumbling over all of this. Um, this is, um, May the halflings uh, live long, glory to the halflings, right? The, the Ferian, the Ferianath, right? We've seen those formulations before in Sindarin. Praise them with great praise, Frodo and Samwise. Daur abaihel konen en anun iglerio, right? So iglerio is praise them, glory unto them, right? That is that is uh, iglerio, which is repeated several times through the course of this this song of praise. Daur abaihel, right there, is Frodo and Sam. Literally, it is... Um, 
the Sindarin word for for noble, for for nobility, right? So, which, which is a Sindarin name for Frodo. Frodo's name. I don't know that we've ever actually discussed the origin of Frodo's name for Professor Tolkien. Frodo's name comes from the Old English uh, Frode or or. How would that be formulated? My old English again, letting me down. Fro- I, I think "frod" uh, meaning um, meaning one who is wise, but specifically one who is one who is learned in experience, one who has gained a great sense of wisdom from being in the world. Right, that is where Frodo's name comes from, and that has here been been altered into the Sindarin meaning meaning noble and nobility. Berhael uh, is is even better than that, or or Berhael, I suppose, because uh, we don't quite formulate that in the same way as Gondorian Sindarin, but uh, Berhael uh, meaning half. Wise, right? That is Samwise. Samwise's name means half wise, and thus we're uh, transliterating that uh, quite literally, if we can, in fact, transliterate literally. Uh, Conan and Anun, right? Anun we will recognize there from Henneth Anun. Uh, Conan and Anun, uh, Conan, the formulation for princes. Anun, um, actually, Anun representing uh, the sunset, but meaning metonymically the West, right? Uh, that's, uh, that's the representation there. Iglerio, praise, praise them, Iglerio, uh, and then coming into our last uh, formulations, bless the um, I suppose forgive my pronunciation bless them bless them long will we praise them and then finally uh, the ring bearers oh bless or oh bless them to the heights of praise them to the heights that's our formulation here so this idea of of everyone this, the, the massed army, the host of the West, right, who have been here now for two weeks, who have, have mended their wounds, who have counted their dead, who have kind of settled into this new rhythm and this new routine. As the hobbits approached, swords were unsheathed and spears were shaken and horns and trumpets sang and men cried with many voices and in many tongues. It's pretty, pretty beautiful. Let me see here. Um, Yes, exactly. Pete saying, I read this as miscellaneous calls of praise from the crowd rather than a formal song. Otherwise, they must have got uh, got the city together to practice a ton. No, you're right. This isn't a song in the traditional sense. It is referred to as the song of praise, but it isn't actually a song. It is just the the echoing and raucous, spontaneous cries, it would seem, of everyone who is here gathered. We've got speakers of Westron. We've got speakers, uh, presumably speakers of Rohiric too, though that isn't uh, that isn't represented here. Sindarin or or the Great Elvish, the High Elvish or the Quenya, and uh, and that's the giving us this this kind of multicultural response to the Hobbits right here. Yeah, let's um, let's keep moving on. We've got so much to cover. Right, let's get to Strider. Strider at last. And so the red blood blushing on their faces and their eyes shining with wonder. Frodo and Sam went forward and saw that amidst the, clam- amidst the clamorous host were set three high seats built of green turves. Behind the seat upon the right floated white on green a great horse running free. Upon the left was a banner, silver upon blue, a ship swan proud faring on the sea. But behind the highest throne, in the middle of all, a great standard was spread in the breeze, and there a white tree flowered upon a sable field beneath the shining crown and seven glittering stars. On the throne sat a mail-clad man. A great sword was laid across his knees, but he wore no helm. As they drew near, he rose, and then they knew him, changed as he was, so high and glad of face, kingly, lord of men, dark-haired with eyes of grey. Frodo ran to meet him, and Sam followed close behind. Well, if this isn't the crown of all, he said, Strider, or I'm still asleep. Yes, Sam Strider, said Aragorn. It is a long way, is it not, from Bree, where you did not like the look of me? A long way for us all, but yours has been the darkest road. And then to Sam's surprise and utter confusion, 
he bowed his knee before them, and taking them by the hand, Frodo upon his right and Sam upon his left, he led them to the throne, and setting them upon it, he turned to the men and captains who stood by and spoke, so that his voice rang over all the host, crying, Praise them! With great praise! And when the glad shout had swelled up and died away again, so Sam's final and complete satisfaction uh, to Sam's final and complete satisfaction and pure joy, a minstrel of Gondor stood forth and knelt and begged leave to sing, and behold, he said, Lo, lords and knights and men of valor unshamed, kings and princes and fair people of Gondor, and riders of Rohan, and ye sons of Elrond and Dunedain of the north, and elf and dwarf, and great hearts of the Shire, and all free folk of the West, now listen to my lay. For I will sing to you of Frodo of the Nine Fingers and the Ring of Doom. And when Sam heard that, he laughed aloud for sheer delight, and he stood up and cried, O oh, great glory and splendor, and all my wishes have come true. And then he wept. And all the host laughed and wept, and in the midst of their merriment and tears, the clear voice of the minstrel rose like silver and gold, and all men were hushed. And he sang to them, now in the elven tongue, now in the speech of the West, until their hearts, wounded with sweet words, overflowed, and their joy was like swords, and they passed in thought out to regions where pain and delight flow together, and tears are the very wine of blessedness. We have spoken many times, of course, about this element of Tolkien's <laughs> creative outpouring, right? It's it's almost too thin a thing to say that this is an element in, in The Lord of the Rings or an element in The Hobbit, even a, a, an element of Tolkien's legendarium as it stands now today. It is something far deeper than that. It is something far more important than that. This seems to be one of those one of those foundational truths for Professor Tolkien, both in his fictional world and in the real world too. This intermingling of sadness and joy and the generation thereby of great beauty. And here we see what is, outside of the pages of the Silmarillion, I would argue, the greatest evocation of that. This moment of of joy, yes, of praise and of delight and of fierce gladness, but also of, of grief and of sadness and of memory for the things which have been lost and the trials which were endured and the things which have been overcome and relief this catharsis right this catharsis that carries us ultimately um until their hearts wounded with sweet words overflowed and their joy was like swords and they passed in thought out to regions where pain and delight flow together and tears are the very wine of blessedness they are transformed they are elevated by this song which isn't of course just any song it is the song of Nine-Fingered Frodo and and, uh, and the Ring of Doom. It is exactly the song that Sam wished to hear back in the shadow of Samoth Nara, right? Back on the, the slopes of Mount Doom as the volcanic ash was falling around them. This is the song that Sam named. This is the song that he wanted. And now here it is. And that isn't just a song of glory to his master. That's not what it's about. He wanted to hear that song as a continuation of the great songs. He wanted to hear the story continue. He wanted to hear his part, yes, but just his part of a greater tale. And now here it is. They have survived. The tale has continued. This is the ultimate moment, I think, of restoration for Sam. This is the return of Samwise Gamgee to who he is at his core, to who he is at his heart. It's it's just lovely. Um, let me see here. Um, I'm catching up. There's some discussion here about uh, 
We're talking about all Shire hearts are great, bar a certain Sandyman. Yes, and some uh, who was talking about yeah, Becca's pointing out and Lobelia, the spoon stealer, right? Yeah, no, this is why we have uh, this is why we have what uh, twelve um, sheriffs for the entire Shire, right? We have now, in fairness, the Shire is bounded by rangers, right? We we know that that is true. The Shire is protected from without. So it doesn't have to like uh, it doesn't have to have a militia of its own. But in terms of keeping the peace in the Shire, right, twelve hobbits for the entire Shire seems to be enough to to keep all of that uh, all of that ready. Yeah, and Jackie's saying it's like Sam spoke the song into existence, which I think I think you're right. Um, okay, I think that in a way you are right. I think that what actually happens, this is my reading of it, is that Sam, in that moment of wisdom, in that transcendent moment of wisdom, is capable of feeling the shape of the story he is capable of hearing the music not the music of of uh frodo of nine fingers and the ring of doom right not that specific piece of music not even the the music of baron one hand and the great jewel right the song that he is remembering at the time he's hearing the music of the einor he's having it seems to me a a sense of the shape of history he's having a sense of the shape of the story and now here it is made manifest sam woke up what 30 minutes ago an hour ago maybe enough for a light meal and that was it before they came here to uh to the um to the uh the the meeting place uh, to the the encampment of the king here nine princes is saying that last paragraph is my favorite in all of tolkien it's a perfect and absolutely exquisite expression of not only what alistair has just pointed out but a tribute to the reward for all the collective efforts of the common people and their capacity for sacrifice and courageous acts there is no feeling of fulfillment and wonder greater than what sam feels at this moment I think you're completely right, Nine Princes. I couldn't have put it better myself. I think that this unification, right? The story encompasses, but the story the story is for everyone. And everyone gets both their proximity to the story, but also the celebration of the story from outside of it, if that makes sense, right? It, Sam would love this story. Sam would weep at this story, even if it wasn't about him, right? The fact that he is moved by the story, that he is transformed by the story, actually has nothing to do with the experiences that he has just himself endured. It's the beauty of the tale itself and the transportive quality of that tale. It's just gorgeous. And of course, this is, I know, a favorite moment in the uh, Peter Jackson adaptation of the Lord uh, of of the Return of the King. Aragorn kneeling, everyone kneeling to the hobbits is a pretty great moment, but this is also very, very good, right? To Sam's surprise and utter confusion, he bowed his knee before them and taking them by the hand, Frodo upon his right and Sam upon his left, of course, he led them to the throne and setting them upon it, right? That's an important detail to note there. He seats them upon his throne. Setting them upon it, he turned to the men and captains who stood by and spoke, so his voice rang all over the host, crying, praise them with great praise. I love, too, the little moment of, uh, of I was going to say humility. Humility isn't quite right. Humanity from Strider there, from, from Aragorn there. Yes, Sam Strider. It's a long way, is it not, from Bree, where you did not like the look of me, right? Hey, remember that whole thing where, yeah. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. So the uh, the hobbits here are, are <laughs> Lynn saying, I don't like Frodo of the Nine Fingers. It sounds like a pirate name. That's a pretty good pirate name. Yes. Good, good. Nine Finger Frodo is more direct, says Martin, but less elevated. I, I agree with that. Yes, I think that um, Frodo of the Nine Fingers. Yeah, I, I think that there is a... Um, Gosh, I wonder, I wonder if I can unpick spontaneously here why that is different. Nine-fingered Frodo sounds like a nickname and it sounds like a manifest, uh, it sounds like a, a, a reduction of Frodo's personal identity. Frodo of the Nine Fingers sounds grand and elevated and puts the 
the the object and the modifier of that object in their proper relationship, right? In their proper hierarchical relationship. Whereas nine-fingered Frodo does the opposite. Nine-fingered Frodo, the most important thing is that he is nine-fingered, which almost feels untrustworthy. Almost feels like he, he should be starring in like a like a you know the fairy tale of a an untrustworthy goblin kind of character. Um, goblin in the fairy tale sense more so than in the uh, more so than in the um, Tolkienian sense, I suppose. Whereas Frodo of the nine fingers puts the focus where it ought to be on Frodo himself yeah okay let's um let's keep moving on uh we're going to talk a little about the swords here as we are um as we are gathered together and at the last as the sun fell from the noon and the shadows of the trees lengthened he ended praise them with great praise he said and knelt and then Aragorn stood up, and all the host arose, and they passed to pavilions made ready to eat and drink and make merry while the day lasted. Frodo and Sam were led apart and brought to a tent, and there, there their old raiment was taken off and folded and set aside with honour, and clean linen was given to them. Then Gandalf came in, and in his arms to the wonder of Frodo, he bore the sword and the elven cloak and the mithril coat that had been taken from him in Mordor. For Sam he brought a coat of gilded mail, and his elven cloak all healed of the soils and hurts that it had suffered, and then he laid them before the and then he laid before them two swords. I do not wish a sword, said Frodo. Tonight at least you should wear one, said Gandalf. Then Frodo took the small sword that had belonged to Sam, that had been laid at his side in Kirith Ungle. Sting I gave to you, Sam, he said. No, master. Mr Bilbo gave it to you, and it goes with a silver coat. He would not wish anyone else to wear it now. Frodo gave way. And Gandalf, as if he were their esquire, knelt and girt their sword belts around them, and then rising he set circlets of silver, uh, silver upon their heads. And when they were arrayed they went to the great feast, and they sat at the king's table, with Gandalf and King Eomer of Rohan, and the prince Imrahil, and all the chief captains, and there also were Gimli and Legolas. But when, after the standing silence, wine was brought, there came in two esquires to serve the kings, or so they seemed to be. One was clad in the silver and sable of the guards of Minas Tirith, and the other in white and green. But Sam wondered what such young boys were doing in an army of mighty men. Then suddenly, as they drew near and he could see them plainly, he exclaimed, Why, look, Mr. Frodo, look here. Well, if it isn't Pippin, Mr. Peregrine Took, I should say, and Mr. Merry, how they've grown, bless me. But I, I can see there's more tales to tell than ours. There are indeed, said Pippin, turning toward him, and we'll be telling them as soon as the feast is ended. In the meantime, you can try Gandalf. He's not so close as he used to be, though he laughs now more than he talks. For the present, Mary and I are busy. We are knights of the city and the mark, as I hope you observe. Another moment of uh, reconnection there. I mentioned earlier that we would see how Frodo has been transformed by his experience, how Frodo has been changed by the ring, by Mordor, by his suffering, by his surrendering to the ring, which I think is a crucial part in our interpretation of this particular event. So Gandalf comes in and he brings with him great clothing, right? Obviously, the the uh, the belongings of Frodo and Sam, both that were given to him by the mouth of Sauron back before Moranon, right? When the mouth of Sauron believed that there was a single hobbit uh, inside Mordor, and they realized, no, no, there are at least possessions of two hobbits here. He brings those uh, those properties back, including the uh, the mithril shirt. And then he 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 lays out these swords for them, the the two swords, as we can see, right? There's the uh, the barrow blade of Sam and Sting too. And Frodo's immediate response: I do not wish for any sword tonight. At least you should wear one," said Gandalf. Frodo turns to the barrow blade. He doesn't turn to Sting. He turns to the barrow blade and says, "Sting, I gave to you, Sam." Sam objects, and Frodo acquiesces, and Gandalf kneels and and binds their sword belts around them. Right, a gesture of 
of huge respect and significance here. For Gandalf to kneel before the hobbits and to act as their esquire is, is a really moving and important uh, piece here. Why does Frodo not want the sword? Well, superficially, I think we might be leaning on the idea that Frodo is suffering from some, you know, simple PTSD here, right? That Frodo has just been through something wildly and evilly traumatic, and he wants to leave behind thoughts of violence and bloodshed. And swords are, of course, emblems of violence and bloodshed. That, I think, is a completely valid interpretation. I am inclined toward another interpretation. Another interpretation that opens up for me that choice that he makes to turn to the barrow blade rather than to turn to sting and that is about power very recently for frodo from his pov right he awoke earlier this morning and the last memory before that was being on the flank of mount doom and the last memory before that was claiming the one ring claiming the ring of power right there in samoth now right he's about to challenge the dark lord and then golem attacks him but he gives in he succumbs to the desire for power to the need of power we can frame that out in innumerable different ways, but however we choose to interpret that, he succumbs to power. And swords, as much as they are representative of martial conflict, are also, of course, representative of power. And when he is compelled to, tonight at least you should wear one, said Gandalf, apparently interested in the appearance of things, like you are being properly, uh, you are being properly dressed for the great feast that is about to come. You, you should look the part, you should be the part, I suppose. Prince of the halflings, right? You should wear the, the, appropriate, uh, the appropriate clothing and have the appropriate accessories, including a blade. That seems to be Gandalf's argument. And Frodo turns to the lesser of the two blades in front of him. Now, I understand also that in that distinction, we might be de-emphasizing what Frodo actually says, which is a pretty generous and pretty considerate thought of his sting I gave to you, Sam. And Sam rejects the idea. No, look, I can hold it for you, but no, that's not that's not how this works. Um, let me see here as I come back. Um, I've had enough trouble for a lifetime, says Grace. Yes, I think that is is a large part of what Frodo is feeling right now. Uh, Erica, I was literally just typing a question of why Frodo doesn't want Sting. I was pointing out the trauma, but how it doesn't sit well with me. Yeah, I think it is that... Um as I say, certainly to me, Pete says, maybe Frodo rejects the sword because he feels it misrepresents how he achieved his task, not through fighting, but by perseverance. And not even by perseverance, right? How did Frodo succeed his task? Is Frodo feeling uncomfortable in this moment? Yes, he accomplished it. Mm -mm. Okay, let's edit that carefully. Yes, his goal was accomplished. Passive voice. Yes, his goal was accomplished. Frodo didn't succeed. How is he feeling now about this about the song of praise? How is he feeling now about having Aragorn kneel to him? How is he feeling now about being sat upon the throne? Right, we can all agree, I think, as Aragorn, I'm sure, would agree, as Gandalf would certainly agree, as, as Merry and Pippin and Legolas and Gimli would certainly agree, as Sam would certainly agree. We can all agree that Frodo deserves all of this accolade, right? He deserves all of this attention, all of this celebration, all of this praise, because as I said in our last reading, Frodo is not tested once. Frodo is tested countless times, innumerable times, and he fails once. But he got the ring to Mount Doom. Anyone else, anyone else would have succumbed miles from the the, the uh, crack of doom itself, right? Hundreds of miles, potentially, from the crack of doom. Anyone else wouldn't have made it past, uh, past Rivendell, for all we know. Wouldn't have made it out of the Shire, but Frodo did. So I think we can all be comfortable that he deserves this praise, but I wonder whether or not he feels that he deserves that, uh, that praise. Gosh, the Chat is all over the place today. It's not scrolling and then scrolling very suddenly. I'm sorry if I'm missing things that you guys are saying. It's uh, it's a tough one to keep up. Here we go. Um, uh, 
Let me see. Seastar saying, I assumed Sam was offered Sting because he had been the one to wield it against Shelob. Yeah, it was it was given to him, right? Kind of, kind of. It is it is passed off to uh, to Sam in that moment. But Sam, I think, making the fair and more accurate uh, decision here too. To Mr. Bilbo gave it to you, and it goes with his silver coat. He would not wish anyone else to wear it now. That last part is. Well, I think it would probably be true, right? The poetry of it, at least, would uh, would do that. Yeah. Mel saying he failed at the end or feels that he failed. And Lynn pointing out shame is a difficult thing. Shame is a difficult thing is a very important theme to bear in mind as we move forward through the resolution of the rest of the story, right? How Frodo feels about his own success and failure, how Frodo feels about his own trial the obstacles that he has overcome and of course we have to separate this we have to differentiate this a little bit we have to be careful not to make too broad assumptions or generalizations about Frodo's state of mind because Frodo is also still under the influence of the Morgul blade right he is still under the influence of the wound that he received back at Weathertop let's uh let's hold on to that and um see how we feel I'm scrolling back to see um Lynette asking I wonder if shame is ever productive I'm inclined to say no I'm inclined to say no shame is reductive and toxic and harmful and in my personal experience at least has never been put to good purpose has never been turned to to virtue but yeah um okay let's uh let's keep moving onward here because i really want to get to uh to uh faramir and eowyn oh I, i do want to note actually before we move on the standing silence here right but when, after the standing silence, wine was brought, there came two esquires to serve the kings. This is the second reference to the standing silence. You remember back when we were at Hennethanun with uh, Faramir and company, they all stand and look to the west, right? We have that moment of silence that is as close to a religious observance as we get in all of the Lord of the Rings. There's nothing that really touches that in terms of uh, in terms of uh, habitual religious practice. Here, apparently, it has been adopted by Aragorn in in the this this. Um, what, this vacation court of Aragorn, I suppose, right? It has been continued to be practiced by uh, by Aragorn here and, and by his company. Let's keep pushing on to uh, a little more of Merry and Pippin. Let's do a little more of Merry and Pippin. At last the glad day ended, and when the sun was gone and the round moon rode slowly above the mists of Anduin and flickered through the fluttering leaves, Frodo and Sam sat under the whispering trees amid the fragrance of fair Ithilien, and they talked deep into the night with Merry and Pippin and Gandalf, and after a while Legolas and Gimli joined them. Then Frodo and Sam learned much of all that had happened to the company after their fellowship was broken on the evil day at Parth Gallon by Rauros Falls, and still there was always more to ask and more to tell. Orcs, and talking trees, and leagues of grass, and galloping riders, and glittering caves, and white towers, and golden halls, and battles, and tall ships sailing, all these passed before Sam's mind until he felt bewildered. But amidst all of these wonders, he returned always to his astonishment at the size of Merry and Pippin, and he made them stand back to back with Frodo and himself. He scratched his head. "'Can't understand it at your age,' he said. "'But there it is. You're three inches taller than you ought to be, or I'm a dwarf.' "'That you most certainly are not,' said Gimli. But what did I say? Mortals cannot go drinking ant drafts and expect no more to come of them than a pot of beer. Ant drafts, said Sam. Here you go about ants again, but what they are beats me. Why, it'll take weeks before we get all these things sized up. Weeks indeed, said Pippin. And then Frodo will have to be locked up in a tower in Minas Tirith and write it all down. Otherwise he'll forget half of it and poor old Bilba will be dreadfully disappointed. Another, uh, <laughs> another beat there upon the fourth wall of this novel right a, a tap a knock a sideways glance right a uh, a jim from the office take to camera from pippin there yeah someone's be- someone had better go and write this book huh yeah 
It's a lovely, lovely beat. I love the connections that are being drawn here. The camaraderie, the simple and easy camaraderie of it all. Legolas and Gimli showing up too with them. The company now reformed, the company reforged almost. And again, of course, the acknowledgement that uh, both Merry and Pippin are physically taller than they used to be. Three inches taller than they used to be. That's a, that's a fair amount. That, that's, you know, that's a significant amount when you're just a hobbit. Yeah, good, <laughs> good. Um, let me see. Uh, always more to ask and more to tell seems like a, ni a nice encapsulation of the Professor's Legendarium, says Grace. Yes, I completely agree. Absolutely. Okay. Let's, um, good. Good. Uh, Martin's saying three inches is a lot for men, even. Yeah, um, yeah, that would take me to six, seven, which I feel like would, would, then it'd be a little, a little excessive, maybe, right? Like, that's probably too much. Yeah. Um, good. Good. Uh, there's some great discussion here of guilt and shame. We will have the opportunity to talk about that. I feel like that could be an entire, um, in fact, specifically, the interaction of guilt and shame and grief and sadness and the ways in which the latter are turned to beauty and the former are not. Yeah, I feel like we could uh, we could have a very long and fruitful discussion on exactly that topic at some point in the future. We will have, as I say, as we move through the latter pages of uh, The Return of the King, we'll have plenty of opportunity to talk about that and uh, to get perilously close to weeping altogether. Yes, good. Okay, let's, um, let's keep going. We'll do one more slide from chapter four. We can't, uh, can't skip over Legolas' song, of course. At length, Gandalf rose. The hands of the king are hands of healing, dear friends, he said. But you went to the very brink of death, ere he recalled you, putting forth all his power, and sent you into the sweet forgetfulness of sleep. And though you have indeed slept long and blessedly, still it is now time to sleep again. And not only Sam and Frodo here, said Gimli, but you too, Pippin. I love you, if only because of the pains you have cost me, which I shall never forget, nor shall I forget finding you in that hill of the last battle. But for Gimli the dwarf, you would have been lost then. But at least I at least I know now the look of a hobbit's foot, though it be all that can be seen under a heap of bodies, and when I heaved the great carcass off you, I made sure you were dead. I could have torn out my beard, and it is only a day yet since you were first up and abroad again. To bed now you go, and so shall I. And I, said Legolas, shall walk in the woods of this fair land, which is rest enough. In days to come, if my elven lord allows, some of our folk may remove hither, and when we come it shall be blessed for a while. For a while. A month, a life, a hundred years of man. But Anduin is near, and Anduin leads down to the sea, to the sea, to the sea, to the sea. The white gulls are crying, the wind is blowing, and the white foam is flying. West, west away, the round sun is falling. Grey ship, grey ship, do you hear them calling? The voices of my people that have gone before me. I will leave, I will leave the woods that bore me. For our days are ending, and our years failing. I will pass the white waters, lonely sailing. Long are the waves on the last shore falling. Sweet are the voices in the lost isle calling. In Arisea, in elven home that no man can discover, where the leaves fall not, land of my people forever. And so singing, Legolas went away down the hill. It's entirely appropriate. It's more than a little heartbreaking, I suppose, that here at the real end of all things, I suppose, right? At the end of joy, when the glad day is done, as our people retire to peaceful sleep, to real rest and restoration, Legolas is apart. Legolas cannot sleep, does not sleep. Legolas is going to walk beneath these trees. He is going to hear the rush of the Anduin. He is going to think about the sea, and he knows what is coming. In days to come, if my elven lords allow, some of my folk shall be removed hither, and when we come, it shall be blessed for a while. 
for a while, a month, a life, a hundred years of man, a good long while, right? Like elves don't do things quickly. They could reside in Athelion for a hundred years, for two hundred years, for five hundred years. But ultimately, being in Athelion itself is being close to the Anduin. And being close to the Anduin is thinking of the sea, and thinking of the sea will lead the elves to depart Middle-earth. There is no other course. There is no other road. There is no other outcome for the elves. Here in the fourth age of Middle-earth, here in the age of man, there is no other course. Ultimately, they will depart, and they want to depart. They want to go. Legolas is feeling the calling. He's feeling that he has been feeling the calling since they took the ships and he saw the gulls, right? He has been feeling this tug at his heart now. Even in this moment of triumph, even in this moment of victory, this moment of, of restoration and reconnection, he is still feeling that tug inside him to go to the sea. Anduin is near, and Anduin leads down to the sea, to the sea. We won't uh, parse the uh, the poetry too clearly. We, we won't delve too deeply into it. Yeah, Mel saying the sound of the river, the sound of the gulls. There are probably more words, uh, more words in those sounds for the elves, more meaning in the sound. I completely agree. Right, that is a song that the elves, that the elves have felt within them forever. Even the elves that have never seen the sea, even the elves that have never departed for Valinor, even the elves that have never as much as it is possible for an elf not to want to go, right? The elves who have been most enthusiastic about tarrying here in Middle-earth, even the rebellious elves who, you know, Galadriel, for example, right? And the founding of Lothlorien, even she feels the tug of the sea. Even she feels that urge to, to go. That is why when she passes the test, she shall go into the West. Partly that is that she has passed the test. Partly it is that she can, she will now be permitted to return, right? Now she will pass the test and go into the West and remain Galadriel. She's acknowledging this this inevitable course of uh, course of events this this inevitable action it's it's really beautiful yeah um good good okay so legolas concludes the chapter as he should with some thoughts on the diminution of of middle earth and the, the the diminution of man the the passing of elves from the world the fact that the world is safe now but is becoming smaller already like even here oh and i guess we should talk about gimli finding pippin right beneath the carcass but beneath the pile of bodies back there before the moranin it's a good thing that he could recognize uh he could recognize a hobbit's foot so that he could drag pippin out and or, or i guess heave the carcass off of him uh and when i heaved the great carcass off you i made sure you were dead not to imply right that uh, well then i stabbed you like three times just to really make sure that you stayed down i made sure you were dead um much like uh, much like Prince Imrahil of Dol Amroth, right? Like you should probably check the bodies that you're carting back to the city. Just just make sure that they're not not actually dead. Uh, I could have torn it or, or make sure that they are or are not totally dead. Uh, it is only a day yet since you were first up and abroad again. So Pippin too has been sleeping for for two weeks, possibly sleeping under the same blissful sleep that has been laid upon them, the same magical sleep that has been laid upon them by Aragorn. Gandalf makes that very clear, right? You went to the very brink of death ere he recalled you, putting forth all his power and sent you into the sweet forgetfulness of sleep. The sleep that Frodo and Sam have experienced is not a normal sleep. It isn't normal even for hobbits to sleep for two weeks straight, right? This is a restorative sleep of healing enkindled, uh, emplaced upon them by Aragorn, by the hands of the king, by the hands of the healer. Hey, let's get into chapter five, shall we? Here with almost half our time remaining, um, that may actually be enough to get through all of Faramir and uh, Faramir and Eowyn. But before we get into chapter five of book six of The Lord of the Rings, we have to go back. We have to go back to the two towers, as I promised last week. We have to go back to Faramir. 
This is Faramir talking. Uh, this is from uh, Book 4, Chapter 5, The Window on the West, of course, to bring us back around to the, the Standing Silence and, and uh, Henneth Anun, right? We, to bring us kind of full circle here in Ithilien, we have to go back and hear what uh, Faramir has to say about the Rohirrim. This is going to be very, very important as we study Faramir's interactions with the Lady Eowyn. So it came to pass in the days of Kyrian the twelfth steward, and my father as the sixth and twentieth, that they rode to our aid, and at the great field of Celebrant they destroyed our enemies that had seized our northern provinces. These are the Rohirrim, as we name them, masters of horses, and we ceded to them the fields of Kelanarthon that have been that have since that are since called Rohan, for that province has long been sparsely peopled. And they became our allies and have ever proved true to us, aiding us at need and guarding our northern marches and the gap of Rohan. Of our lore and manners they have learned what they would, and their lords speak our speech at need. Yet for the most part they hold by the ways of their own fathers, and to their own memories, and they speak among themselves their own north tongue. And we love them, tall men and fair women, valiant both alike, golden-haired, bright-eyed, and strong. They remind us of the youth of men as they were in the elder days. Indeed it is said by our lore masters that they, have from, uh, that they have from of old this affinity with us, that they are come from those same three houses of men as were the Numenorians in their beginning. Not from Hador the golden-haired, the elf-friend maybe, yet from such of his people as were not sent over sea into the west, refusing the call. For so we reckon men in our lore, calling them high, or men of the west, which were Numenorians, and the middle peoples, men of the twilight, such as are the Rohirrim and their kin that dwell still far in the north, and the wild, the men of darkness. Yet now... If the Rohirrim are grown in some ways more like to us, enhanced in arts and gentleness, we too are become more like to them, and can scarce claim any longer the title high. We are become middlemen of the twilight, but with memory of other things. For as the Rohirrim do, we now love war and valor as things good in themselves, both a sport and an end. And though we still hold that a warrior should have more skills and knowledge than only the craft of weapons and slaying, we esteem a warrior nonetheless above men of other crafts. Such is the need of our days." So even was my brother Boromir, a man of prowess, and for that he was accounted the best man in Gondor. And very valiant indeed he was. No heir of Minas Tirith has for long years been so hardy in toil, so onward into battle, or blown a mightier note on the great horn. Faramir sighed and fell silent for a while. This is Faramir's perspective on Rohan, and we might infer the educated, progressive perspective of the men of Gondor on the men of Rohan, the people of Gondor. I'm using men here, of course, and I qualify this because we're going to be talking about gender in the slides to come. Uh, I'm using men here in the capital M human being sense of the word that Professor Tolkien uses. Um, but we can try and, you know, try and dilute that a little bit, right? What do the people of Gondor think of the people of Rohan? Well, they think this. Long ago, 500 years ago, Errol the Young came down from the north to aid the people of Gondor, right? On the field of Celebrant, they destroyed our enemies and seized our northern pro that had seized our northern provinces. These are the Rohirrim, as we name them, masters of horses, and we ceded to them the fields of Kelanarthon that are since called Rohan, right? They came to our aid, we gave them Rohan. Actually, nobody lived there. They were sparsely populated. Nobody lived there, and they have lived there happily ever since. Of our lore and manners, they have learned what they could. They have become something like us, right? But still, they preserve their own traditions. They preserve their own sense of themselves. Yet, for the most part, they hold by the ways of their own fathers and to their own memories. Minor inserted editorial asterisk here. Hey, remember when we were talking about the not-so-long memories of the Rohirrim, right? Like, Faramir may not be entirely accurate here, but they hold to the ways of their fathers and to their own memories, and they speak among themselves in their own north tongue. And we love them, he says. And we love them. Tall men and fair women, valiant both alike. That is a very important note there. 
Tall men, fair women, valiant both alike, golden-haired, bright-eyed, and strong, they reminded us of the youth of men as they were in the elder days. Right? This is a reminder of what men can be, of what human beings in the frame of Middle-earth can be. For, we, uh, for so we reckon men in our lore, calling them the high, or men of the west, which were Numenorians, and the middle peoples, men of the twilight, such are the Rohirrim, and the kin that dwell still far in the north, and the wild, the men of darkness, right? We talked about this back in, uh, when we were discussing chapter 5 of book 4. This is a very important bit of, of taxonomic language that Faramir gives us here, right? Three categories of men. High men. Numenorians, former Numenorians. Right, that's that's us basically. That's that's us. That's Aragorn. You know, the Dunedain are of that line. And then there are the middlemen, the men of the twilight, the Rohirrim, the men of the north, presumably the men of uh, of Dale, presumably like the Beornings and the the wild to the east of the Misty Mountains, so on and so forth. Right, these are men of the twilight. And then there are the dark men, the men of darkness, the wild, the men who have fallen into into savagery and corruption. Yet now, if the Rohirrim are grown in some ways more like to us, enhanced in arts and gentleness, right. Since the time that we have, uh, since our alliance over the course of the last 500 years, the Rohirrim have actually become a little more like us. They have been elevated in arts and gentleness. But we too have become more like them and can scarce claim the title high. We are become middlemen of the twilight, but with memory of other things. That is what differentiates us from the Rohirrim now. It's just that we can remember the time when we weren't this. We can remember a time when there was more gentleness in the world. For as the Rohirrim do, we now love war and valor as things good in themselves, both a sport and an end. This is our favorite tool and our favorite pastime. This is our job and our hobby. This is what we do is fight. We make war now. And though we still hold that a warrior should have more skills and knowledge than only craft of weapons and slaying, we still have a sense that the great warriors can do more than just fight— if you're a great warrior, you're going to get more respect than anyone else, right? We esteem a warrior nonetheless above men of other crafts. Such is the need of our days. And then he talks a little bit about Boromir. Which, of course, connects to Faramir's other great speech from this passage of the book, which I'll just quote now. It's a short quote, so I didn't prepare it on a slide. And, of course, I'm sure you can all recite it along with me. For myself, said Faramir, I would see the white tree and flower again in the courts of the kings, and the silver crown return and Minas Tirith in peace. Minas Anor again, as of old, full of light, high and fair, beautiful as a queen among other queens, not a mistress of many slaves, nay, not even a kind mistress of willing slaves. War must be while we defend our lives against the destroyer who would devour all. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend, the city of the men of Numenor, and I would have her loved for her memory, her ancientry, her beauty, and her present wisdom, not feared, save as men may fear the dignity of a man old and wise. Now, all of this is of vital importance, right? Because we are going to be talking about Faramir and Eowyn, and we are going to be talking about one of the more controversial parts of this book, and... Normally, I am comfortable allowing a certain ambiguity when it comes to criticism of Tolkien, right? If this doesn't work for you, if you hate Tom Bombadil, like, I totally get it. I don't hate Tom Bombadil, but I see where you're going. If you can't make it through the Council of Elrond without, like, the, the Cliff's Notes version, like the uh, the the YouTube uh, synopsis video version of the Council of Elrond, I totally get that, too. If you don't like the, the Minds of Moria, if you don't like Lothlorien, there are lots of things in this book that you might not like and which might not work for you. But there is an outstanding and oft-repeated criticism of Professor Tolkien, which comes into 
into focus in the slides that we're about to discuss, and it rests upon the character of Eowyn. And hey, isn't it great that Eowyn marches to war against the will of her uncle, her adoptive father? Isn't it great that she slays the Witch King of Angmar? And then isn't it terrible that she falls in love with Faramir, a guy that she literally just met, and decides to go be a healer, decides to go be a gardener, decides to set aside that which has defined her for the longest span of her life, and just go off and be quiet and be good and be a well-behaved wife somewhere. You can read these passages and find things to criticize about them. But I'm going to argue in the course of the next half hour and probably picking up in next week's session that that is not actually a fair reading of what is happening here. Or at least it is fair to say that if we are going to criticize Eowyn for stepping back from the martial frame and becoming a healer, becoming a gardener, becoming a a ruler, a lowercase q queen, right? As Aragorn has used that word to describe her before, becoming a queen of, of Ithilien and the company of Faramir. If we're going to criticize her for that, then we have to criticize Faramir in exactly the same way because he makes exactly the same choice. He steps back too from this martial frame. He steps back too from the arrow, from the sword, from the warrior and becomes something gentler. And his argument, as it's introduced to us even back in The Two Towers, and certainly as it's articulated over the course of the next two slides here in Chapter 5 of Book 6 of The Lord of the Rings, his argument is very clear. This is not Eowyn-specific. Eowyn should not set aside bloodshed and slaughter and the desire for glory in order to build something better. Everyone should. Everyone should. We ought not to be middlemen anymore. We ought not to... <sighs> To pursue, uh, to pursue war as a sport and an end in itself, right? We ought not to love the arrow for its swiftness and the sword for its sharpness and the warrior for his glory. We ought not to do these things. This is actually incompletely bad, right? This is, this is partially bad. It is okay to love and respect the warrior. But as he says, back in the day, back when, when Minas Tirith was at its height, back when Gondor was really, you know, glorious, we understood that Great warriors had other skills too, that just being a warrior was not enough. This is going to be echoed by, you know, the Warden of the Houses of Healing. It's, we get a few different perspectives on this. Let's, um, let's uh, push this in. Jackie's saying, no, 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 Eowyn earned her renown. Her shield maiden aspect has, has served its purpose. She's growing and changing and ready to rebuild and contribute to society in another way. Absolutely, Jackie, right? Okay, I've done enough framing. Let's get into it. <laughs> let's talk about Eowyn in the Houses of Healing. Over the city of Gondor, doubt and great dread had hung. Fair weather and clear sun, sun had seemed but a mockery to men whose days held little hope, and who looked each morning for news of doom. Their lord was dead and burned. Dead lay the king of Rohan in their citadel, and the new king which had come to them in the night was gone again to a, uh, to a war with powers too dark and terrible for any might or valor to conquer. And no news came. After the host left Morgul Vale and took the northward road beneath the shadow of the mountains, no messenger had returned, nor any rumor of what was passing in the brooding east. When the captains were but two days gone, the Lady Eowyn bade the women who tended her to bring her raiment, and she would not be gainsaid, but rose. And when they had clothed her and set her arm in a sling of linen, she went to the warden of the Houses of Healing. Sir, she said, I am in great unrest, and I cannot lie longer in sloth. Lady, he answered, you have not yet healed, and I was commanded to tend to you with especial care. You shall not have risen for your from your bed for seven days yet, or so I was bidden. I beg you to go back. I am healed, she said, healed at least in body, save my left arm only, and that is at ease. But I shall sicken anew if there is naught that I can do. Are there no tidings of war? The women can tell me nothing. There are no tidings, said the warden. Save that the lords have ridden to Morgul Vale, and men say that the new captain out of the north is their chief, a great lord is that, and a healer, 
It is a thing passing strange to me that the healing hand should also wield the sword. It is not thus in Gondor now, though once it was so, if old tales be true. But for long years we healers have only sought to patch the rents made by the men of swords. Though we should still have enough to do without them, the world is full enough of hurts and mischances without wars to multiply them. It needs but one foe to breed a war, not two, Master Warden, answered Eowyn. And those who have not swords can still die upon them. Would you have the folk of Gondor gather you herbs only while the Dark Lord gathers armies? And it is not always good to be healed in body. Nor is it always evil excuse me, nor is it always evil to die in battle, even in bitter pain. Were I permitted in this dark hour, I would choose the latter. So Eowyn is back on her feet. It has been two days since the departure of the host of the West. We're jumping back in the timeline now that we're going to catch up by the end of this chapter, of course. She goes to the warden and says, I am going out of my mind. I cannot stay in bed any longer. I cannot just be here in the houses of healing. You have to give me something to do. You have to at the very least tell me what is happening with the war. And he says, well, we have no news. There are no tidings save that the lords have written to Morgulvel and men said that the new captain out of the north is their chief. The new captain out of the north, right? Oh, the, the ranger, ah, uh, what's his name? Stroder, I forget. Anyway, but yeah, that guy who came out of the north, he seems pretty good. A great lord is that and a healer. It is a thing passing strange to me that the healing hand should also wield the sword. So this is exactly what we're talking about about Faramir back in Ithilien, right? It is strange to me now, in Gondor now, that someone who fights that someone who wields a sword can also heal that someone can be schooled in both the the military arts and the healing arts that someone can be composed of both sides of life right the 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 martial and the domestic i suppose the destructive and the constructive that anyone can inhabit that space seems surprising now to the warden of the houses of healing of Minas Tirith, and he acknowledges himself used to be that way of course but now now for long years we healers have only sought to patch the rents made by the men of swords. We have been subjugated in our purpose by the men of swords. This is what we do now, is patch people up after fights. Though we should still have enough to do without them, the world is full enough of hurts and mischances without wars to multiply them. Saying pretty clearly that war is a bad thing, that fighting is a bad thing, this preoccupation with warfare as a sport and an end in itself, to quote Faramir, is a bad thing. And Eowyn objects. It needs but one foe to breed a war, not two, Master Warden, and those who have not swords can still die upon them. Hey, we didn't start this. We are not the ones who, who decided that, hey, wouldn't it be great to have a war? We are defending the, the realms of the West here. We are defending Gondor, we are defending Minas Tirith, we are defending Rohan in its entirety. We are doing these things because we are called upon to do them. This is, this is our purpose. And by the way, since you are here healing the rents made in people by the men of swords, maybe you shouldn't always. It isn't the worst thing in the world to die in glory. Even if you die in pain, that can be better than being healed. This is where Eowyn is. She wishes that she could have died. She is still in a much less dramatic way, perhaps in a much less urgent way, but in a way that is deeper and slower and colder for all that. Eowyn is still Fae. She was Fae on the field when she saw Theoden King fall, and she is still Fae now. She is seeking death. Let's uh, keep pushing on, because, of course, she is sent to Faramir here. My lord, said the warden, here is the Lady Eowyn of Rohan. She rode with the king and was sorely hurt and dwells now in my keeping, but she is not content and wishes to speak to the steward of the city. Do not misunderstand him, lord, said Eowyn. It is not lack of care that grieves me. No houses could be fairer for those who desire to be healed, but I cannot lie in sloth idle, caged. I looked for death in battle, but I have not died, and battle still goes on. At a sign from Faramir, the warden bowed and departed. "'What would you have me do, lady?' said Faramir. "'I also am a prisoner of the healers.' 
He looked at her, and being a man whom pity deeply stirred, it seemed to him that her loveliness amid her grief would pierce his heart. And she looked at him, and saw the grave tenderness in his eyes, and yet knew, for she was bred among men of war, that here was one whom no rider of the mark could outmatch in battle. "'What do you wish?' he said again. "'If it lies in my power, I will do it.' "'I would have you command this warden and bid him let me go,' she said. But, th but though her words were still proud, her heart faltered, and for the first time she doubted herself. She guessed that this tall man, both stern and gentle, might think her merely wayward, like a child that has not the firmness of mind to go on with a dull task to the end. "'I myself am in the warden's keeping,' answered Faramir. "'Nor have I yet taken up my authority in the city, but had I done so, I should still listen to his counsel, and should not cross his will in matters of his craft unless in some great need.' "'But I do not desire healing,' she said. "'I wish to ride to war like my brother Eomer, "'or better like Theoden the king, "'for he died and has both honour and peace.' "'It is too late, lady, to follow the captains, "'even if you had the strength,' said Faramir. "'But death in battle may come to us all, "'willing or unwilling. "'You will be better prepared to face it in your own manner, "'if while there is still time you do as the healer commanded. "'You and I, we must endure with patience "'the hours of waiting.' "'So,' A couple of obvious things here. The moment that they meet, what does Faramir see in Eowyn? He sees beauty. He is stirred by pity and by her beauty. And those two things, as we know, right? Pity and beauty, sorrow and beauty, these things are alchemical together. They give rise to a greater and more powerful emotional response, which Faramir certainly seems to be feeling here. It seemed to him that her loveliness amid her grief would pierce his heart. This is joy and beauty, tragic beauty here. And she looked at him and saw the grave tenderness in his eyes. So she sees the the solemnity and the gentleness of Faramir, but also knows, because she was bred among men of war, that here was one whom no rider of the mark could outmatch in battle. Ah, wait, this does not match my expectation of, of what we're doing here. Uh, you are clearly a man of great skill, and yet you are showing me this pity. You are a warrior, yes, but you are showing me this other thing that I do not normally associate with warriors. Ha, huh, weird. And this is why she starts to falter, right? I would have you command this warden and, and bid him let me go, she said. But though her words were still proud, her heart faltered, and for the first time she doubted herself, she guessed that this tall man, both stern and gentle, might think her merely wayward, like a child that has not the firmness of mind, to go on with a dull task to the end. Which sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Because doesn't that sound like Aragorn chastising Eowyn and saying, look, if any other captain had been left in charge of Edoras, they would have served, they would have stayed, they would have led their people, they would have done as their king commanded them. But such is your desire for glory, such is your desire for death, such is your desire to spill blood upon the battlefield. Others, yours, were fairly indifferent on that fact at the moment, actually. Such is your desire to go to war, you are actually betraying your king. You are a wayward child who has not the uh, who has not the strength of mind to stick to her assigned task. You've been given a task by your king and you are not fulfilling it. That is part of Aragorn's I'm exaggerating it for uh, for for uh, I'm exaggerating it for impact. Of course, he doesn't speak quite so coldly to her nor does he mean it quite so coldly to her, but that is the the crux of what Aragorn says to her. But it turns out that it doesn't matter. Faramir would not order, right? Um, I myself am in the warden's keeping, nor should I have, uh, nor have I yet taken up my authority in the city, right? So yeah, a, I'm actually here too. I, I'm I'm being kept here, kind of against my will too. B, I'm not the steward of the city right now. There is no steward of the city, so I'm not in a position where I can order the warden of the houses of healing to do anything. But had I done so, I should still listen to his counsel and should not cross his will in matters of his craft unless in some great need. And Eowyn lays it out. I do not desire healing. 
I wish to ride to war like my brother Aomer, or better like Theoden the king, for he died and has both honor and peace. I do not want to get better. I want to die. This is what Eowyn is, is making clear here. Um, <laughs> Pete asking, wait, is this a kissing book? It's gonna be. It's gonna be a kissing book. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, Lynette saying, and hey, the company's not that bad, is it? Faramir cocks an eyebrow. Yeah, Faramir the flirt machine here. He's being, I, I, we should be careful too here. He is speaking in very courtly terms to her. He is being charming to her, but there is no kind of uh, token of anything um anything inappropriate here not yet anyway let's keep moving onward you'll see that i've just pulled basically this entire this entire uh, section of the book because it's just glorious she did not answer but as he looked at her it seemed to him that something in her softened as though a bitter frost were yielding at the first faint presage of spring a tear sprang in her eye and fell down her cheek like a glistening raindrop her proud head drooped a little then quietly more as if speaking to herself than to him but the healers would have me lie abed seven days yet she said and my window does not look eastward. Her voice was now that of a maiden, young and sad. Faramir smiled, though his heart was filled with pity. Your window does not look eastward, he said. That can be amended. In this I will command the warden. If you will stay in this house in our care, lady, and take your rest, then you shall walk in, then you shall walk in the garden in the sun as you will, and you shall look east, whither all our hopes have gone. And here you will find me, walking and waiting, and also looking east." It would ease my care if you would speak to me or walk at whiles with me. Then she raised her head and looked him in the eyes again, and a color came into her pale face. How should I ease your care, my lord? she said, and I do not desire the speech of living man. Would you have my plain answer? he said. I would. Then, Eowyn of Rohan, I say to you that you are beautiful. In the valleys of our hills there are flowers fair and bright and maidens fairer still, but neither flower nor lady have I seen till now in Gondor so lovely and so sorrowful. It may be that only a few days are left ere darkness falls upon her world, and when it comes I hope to face it steadily. But it would ease my heart if while the sun yet shines I could see you still, for you and I have both passed under the wings of the shadow, and the same hand drew us back. Alas, not me, lord, she said. Shadow lies on me still. Look not to me for healing. I am a shield maiden, and my hand is ungentle. But I thank you for this at least, then I need not keep to my chamber. I will walk abroad by the, the grace of the steward of the city. And she did him a courtesy and walked back to the house. But Faramir for a long while walked alone in the garden, and his glance now strayed rather to the house than to the eastward walls. I love how gentle Faramir is, how he takes Eowyn's metaphor here and turns it to appropriately metaphorical effect but the healers would have me lie abed seven days yet she said and my window does not look eastward literally of course yes her window does not look eastward but also metaphorically her window does not look eastward she can't pierce the veil of the many miles between them to see the battle she can't experience the battle at the Moranin. she is separated from aragorn the man that she loves she is separated from her brother she is separated from her man from from the people that she rode from edoras with remember right in the company of mary too right she has left these things or rather more accurately these things have left her and now she is blinded to them her window does not look eastward and faramir smiles though his heart is filled with pity your window does not look eastward well that can be amended we will move you we will do what we have to do you can walk in the garden just stay here and rest it's all going to be okay right it's it, you will find me walking and waiting and also looking east it would ease my care if you would speak to me or walk at wiles with me oh faramir are we talking about you now is this what we're are, are we talking about you 
this feels a little uncomfortable, right? This feels a little, to, to modern eyes and modern sensibilities, I think this feels a little uncomfortable. And this is not, I'm not going to mount a defense saying, but you know, in the time of Tolkien and in the mythical ancient time of, of Middle Earth, it was probably fine for men to talk to women like this and to keep their eye on their opportunities here. My response is not that. My response is, I do not think that is what Faramir is doing. Or rather, I think that is imperfectly what Faramir is doing. Faramir is speaking honestly. Faramir is not doing what a modern man in a story of this type, a modern character in a story of this type, would do. He is not, and never will, manipulating Eowyn. He is not playing games with her. He is telling her the absolute truth. This is old-school chivalry right here. He is telling her the absolute truth. And here you will find me walking and waiting and also looking east. It would ease my care if you would speak to me or walk at whiles with me. That is a statement of fact. That is not, as it so often would be presented in the modern world, a leading bit of manipulation, right? You know, I would just feel so much better if you were around. So you're going to be around, right? Like you're going to be around. You're going to talk to me. You're going to hang out with me. Maybe we could get coffee sometime. How would that be? No, he's not. He's not doing the implicit second part of that that is so often implicit in the modern world. He's not doing that part. He's doing just the first part, the statement. It would ease my care if you would speak to me or walk at whiles with me. And she responds in entirely appropriate fashion, right? How should I ease your care, my lord? And I do not desire the speech of living man. And he tells her that she is beautiful. In the valleys of our hills there are flowers fair and bright, and maidens fair still neither flower nor lady have I seen them in Gondor so lovely and so sorrowful. It may be that only a few days from after your darkness falls on the world. Hey, we're on the clock here. The odds of uh, of your hobbit there succeeding in his mission, not great, actually. The odds of the host of the West storming Moranon and taking Barad-dûr, way worse. Like, that's not... We've probably got, like, a couple of days, and if we've got a couple of days, I would quite like to just look upon you. I would just quite like to see beauty in the world. This... This, to me, is not entirely distinct from Pippin's desire to run on the open grass and to feel the sun again, right, in the moments before he believes that he is going to die. And I'm well aware there that I'm running the risk of sounding as though I am objectifying Eowyn, that I am turning her into landscape, that I am turning her into scenery. And certainly that is that is not my intent, because I don't think that the appreciation of either of these things is, either of these experiences is is reductive. Rather, it is, it is submissive, right? Pippin does not seek to enjoy the green grass beneath his feet, the cool grass beneath his feet, and the sun overhead as a means of dominating those things, right? He is not claiming possession of those things. He's just like, oh, this is awesome. This is, this is great. I am appreciative generally, right? Without the desire to own, I am appreciative of this thing. And it seems as though Faramir is leaning in the same direction. A little little different, perhaps, but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, let me see here. Um... Okay, good. <laughs> a lot of chat in the a lot of chat in the chat, of course. But yes, uh, Martin saying never felt that Faramir was anything but earnest here. Yes, yes. And Jackie pointing out he wants to keep tabs on her. Well, of course he does. He wants to to keep her company, make sure that she's not you know, to the degree that he is in any way being manipulative. I suppose it's probably uh, out of a desire to to preserve a certain um, a certain uh, health and well being for Eowyn. There, yeah. Becca saying this is just a little too flowery and sappy for me. Oh, really, Becca? That's too bad. I love this stuff. This is so good. Okay. Um, I've got 15 minutes left. Let's see what we can do here to push through. Um, 
So yes, Eowyn still, Eowyn still, right? Uh, we have both passed under the wings of the shadow and the same hand drew us back. Faramir drawing a connection of, again, not pity there, but sympathy. We have been through the same thing, you and me, and now we're on the other side. And Eowyn says, ha ha, no, I am not on the other side. I am still beneath the shadow. Look not to me for healing. I am a shield maiden and my hand is ungentle. But I thank you for this, at least that I need not keep to my chamber. And that's it. She does him a courtesy. She she inclines her head and, and leaves. That is... um. That is that slide. Let's see if we can uh, get through a little further here. Ah, this is... I, I am pretty crazy for this stuff, as you can tell. So this is now standing on... So uh, for the better part of a week, they walk together in the gardens of the Houses of Healings, right? Uh, the Houses of Healing, right? They, they walk in the, the trees there. They go out to the battlements. First Eowyn goes out to the battlements and Faramir joins her. Then they start walking together. Then they're spending all their time together. And they are kind of growing closer to each other. And now he finds her again. What do you look for, Eowyn? said Faramir. Does not the black gate lie yonder? said she. And must he not now come thither? It is seven days since he rode away. Seven days, said Faramir. But think not ill of me if I say to you, they have brought me both a joy and a pain that I never thought to know. Joy to see you. But pain, because now the fear and doubt of this evil time are grown dark indeed. Eowyn, I would not have this world end now, or lose so soon what I have found. Lose what you have found, Lord, she answered, and she looked at him gravely, and her eyes were kind. I know not what in these days you have found that you could lose. But come, my friend, let us not speak of it. Let us not speak at all. I stand upon some dreadful brink, and it is utterly dark in the abyss before my feet. And whether there is light behind me, I cannot tell, for I cannot turn yet. I wait for some stroke of doom. Yes, we wait for the stroke of doom, said Faramir. And they said no more. And it seemed to them as they stood on the wall that the wind died and the light failed and the sun was bleared and all sounds in the city and in the lands about were hushed. Neither wind nor voice nor bird call nor rustle of leaf nor their own breath could be heard. The very beating of their hearts was stilled. Time halted. And as they stood so, their hands met and clasped, though they did not know it. And still they waited for what, for they knew not what. Then presently... It seemed to them that above the ridges of the distant mountains another vast mountain of darkness rose, towering up like a wave that should engulf the world, and about it lightnings flickered, and then a tremor ran through the earth, and they felt the walls of the city quiver. A sound like a sigh went up from all the lands about them, and their hearts beat suddenly again. It reminds me of Numenor, said Faramir, and wondered to hear himself speak. Of Numenor, said Eowyn. Yes, said Faramir, of the land of Westerness that foundered, and of the great dark wave climbing over the green lands and above the hills and coming on darkness unescapable. I often dream of it. Then you think that the darkness is coming, said Eowyn, darkness unescapable? And suddenly she drew close to him. No, said Faramir, looking into her face. It was but a picture in the mind. I do not know what is happening. The reason of my waking mind tells me that a great evil has befallen and we stand at the end of days, but my heart says nay. And all my limbs are light, and a hope and joy are come to me that no reason can deny. Eowyn, Eowyn, white lady of Rohan, in this hour I do not believe that any darkness will endure. And he stooped and kissed her brow. Eowyn acknowledging again that she is caught. Okay, Eowyn acknowledging for the first time, in fact, that she is caught in a moment of indecision here. She has, up until this point, been talking in terms of wishing for death. There is no lack of certainty in her desire here, right? She she wants to die. She is still under the shadow. She cannot be healed. She does not want to be healed. But here in this moment, as he's saying, um, I would not have this world end now or lose so soon what I have found, right? Expressing a very fair, you know, love for her. In effect, lose what you found, Lord. 
I know not what in these days you have found that you could lose, but come, my friend, let us not speak of it. Let us not speak at all, right? She's pushing back from this. I stand upon some dreadful brink, and it is utterly dark in the abyss before my feet, but whether there is any light behind me, I cannot tell, for I cannot turn yet. I wait for some stroke of doom. She is waiting for the stroke of judgment, right? She is waiting for a moment of revelation. She is waiting for this moment when it becomes clear that she might be able to turn. The abyss before her is dark, but there may now be a light behind her. There wasn't before. She was still under the shadow completely. She wanted to die in peace and glory like Theoden King. That was what she wanted. And now she is recognizing at least that there is a complicated space. She doesn't want to talk about it. She doesn't want to delve into, hey, we're not doing the feelings conversation right now, Faramir. This would be a really bad time. And he echoes, yes, we wait for the stroke of doom reflecting her internal conflict with the external conflict. And what happens then? Frodo claims the ring is what happens then. It seemed to them as they stood upon the wall that the wind died, the light failed, the sun was bleared, and all sounds of the city and in the lands about were hushed. Neither wind nor voice nor bird call nor rustle of leaf nor their own breath could be heard. The very beating of their hearts was stilled. Time halted. This is when Frodo has claimed the ring and is fighting with Gollum there on the very the brink of the, the chasm. And then... Time continues, right? The, the great darkness rises up. Uh, above the ridges of the distant mountains, another vast mountain of darkness rose, towering up like a wave that would engulf the world, and about it lightnings flickered, and then a tremor ran through the earth, and they felt the walls of the city quiver. A sound like a sigh went up of all the lands about them, and their hearts beat suddenly again. And, oh, God, this is terrible. And, right, we had the association of the wave before, of the fist that rose up. We had this association with the fall of Numenor back when we were uh, with Frodo and Sam, and Fa Faramir now makes that completely clear. It reminds me of Numenor, the land of Westerness that founded and of the great dark wave climbing up over the green lands and above the hills and coming on darkness unescapable I often dream of it this this is what I dream of this wall of darkness that is going to consume us A this definitely happened at least once before in history and it took the whole of Numenor with it B I dream of this all the time was my dream prophetic is this a glimpse of the future that I have been seeing is this now the darkness unescapable and she asks him she says the two beats here too of of agency given to Eowyn that uh, as silence uh, as silence claims them they hold hands, their, their hands clasp though they themselves are not aware of it, right? This is a mutual thing. And then she gets closer to him Do you think the darkness is coming? Darkness unescapable and suddenly she drew close to him and in that moment is like, no Everything that I know about the world tells me yes. Everything that I know about the world tells me that this is it. This is the doom that we have all been waiting for. Sauron has claimed the ring. Uh, the, the light has failed entirely. Darkness is coming. We are so screwed. It's all going to be real bad from this point on. Everything in my rational mind leans in that direction. And yet I have this feeling. Eowyn, Eowyn, white lady of Rohan, in this hour, I do not believe that any darkness will endure. Like Sam having that glimpse where he sees the starlight and realizes that the shadow is a small and passing thing, A, Faramir is having that too. Not just this darkness will pass, that no darkness will ever endure, that, that ultimately the light will always be victorious. But also, this is not the darkness unescapable. This is not the fall of Numenor. This is not the new fall of Numenor, if you like. This is something else. This is a moment for hope. And then we get the coming of the eagle. And so they stood on the walls of the city of Gondor, and a great wind rose and blew, and their hair, raven and golden, streamed out, mingling in the sun, uh, mingling in the air. And the shadow departed, and the sun was unveiled, the light leapt forth, and the waters of Anduin shone like silver. And in all the houses of the city men sang for joy, sang for the joy, excuse me, that welled up in their hearts from what source they could not tell. And before the sun had fallen far from the noon out of the east, there came a great eagle flying, and he bore tidings beyond hope from the lords of the west, crying, Sing 
now, ye people of the Tower of Honor, for the realm of Sauron is ended forever, and the dark tower is thrown down. Sing and rejoice, ye people of the Tower of Guard, for your watch hath not been in vain, and the black gate is broken, and your king hath passed through, and he is victorious. Sing and be glad, all ye children of the West, for your king shall come again, and he shall dwell among you all the days of your life, and the tree that was withered shall be renewed, and he shall plant it in the high places, and the city shall be blessed. Sing, all ye people. And the people sang in the ways of the city. This is the coming of the news, obviously. This is the um, <laughs> this is the uh, moment when we find out that actually everything is turning out pretty well. Though it's not just the coming of the news, right? To be completely clear here, it's not just the coming of the news. We get these uh, we get these three beats of or well, mm, okay, we get two beats of news, and then we get one beat of fair prediction, and then we get a beat of outright prophecy, right? Sing now, you people of the Tower of Honor, for the realm of Sauron has ended uh, forever, and the dark tower is thrown. Hey. The Dark Tower has been destroyed, Sauron is gone, the Black Gate is down, your king is victorious. Good job. Just to let you know, everything went really, really well. It turns out that was a win for the home team here. Then, sing and be glad, all ye children of the West. So you notice how we go from Tower of Anor, right? It's old name, Tower of Guard, it's modern name. And now all children of the West. Sing and be glad, all ye children of the West, for your king shall come again, and he shall dwell among you all the days of your life. It's not just that you've won, it's that the king is coming. The, the, the returning king is here now. And then we get this weird beat about the prophecy. And the tree that was withered shall be renewed, and he shall plant it in the high places, and the city shall be blessed. It is going to be months before Gandalf leads uh, Aragorn up on his little journey to go and find the uh, the sapling of the white tree and uh, take it back to the uh, back to the citadel. So just a little moment of prophecy there from the eagles. Okay, I have five minutes left and a hard out. Can we do? Yes, let's do it. You know what? Let's do it. One more slide of Faramir and Eowyn. I'm so thrilled that we got to the end of this story. One more slide of Faramir and Eowyn. It is a long slide, but this is the end of their story. And then next week, we'll be able to transition out into the crowning of Aragorn and so on and so forth. Then Faramir came and sought her, and once more they stood on the walls together. Okay, so to, to put this in perspective, uh, the news has now come to Minas Tirith that, that everyone has been victorious, that the, the, the plot has happened in exactly the way that we thought it would, and everyone has been summoned, right? The word came from Eomir to, to summon everyone out to the fields of, of uh, Cormelon so that they can talk and, and celebrate and be there all together, and neither Eowyn nor Faramir has left the Houses of Healing. Then Faramir came and sought her, and once more they stood on the walls together, and he said to her, Eowyn, why do you tarry here, and do not go to the rejoicing in Cormelon beyond Caer Andros, where your brother awaits you? And she said, Do you not know? But he answered, Two reasons there may be, but which is plainer? I do not know. And she said, I do not wish to play at riddles. Speak plainer. Then if you will have it so, lady, he said, You do not go because only your brother called for you, and to look on the Lord Aragorn Elendil's heir and his triumph would now bring you no joy, or because I do not go and you desire still to be near me. And maybe for both these reasons, and you yourself cannot choose between them, Eowyn, do you not love me, or will you not? I wished to be loved by another, she answered, and I desire no man's pity. That I know, he said. You desired to have the love of the Lord Aragorn, because he was high and puissant, and you wished to have renown and glory and be lifted far above the mean things that crawl on the earth. And as a great captain may to a young soldier, he seemed to you admirable. For so he is, a lord among men, the greatest that now is. But when he gave you only understanding and pity, then you desired to have nothing unless a brave death in battle. Look at me, Eowyn. And Eowyn looked at Faramir long and steadily, and Faramir said, Do not scorn pity that is the gift of a gentle heart, Eowyn. But I do not offer you my pity. 
for you are a lady high and valiant, and have yourself one renown that shall not be forgotten. And you are a lady beautiful, I deem, beyond even the words of the elven tongue to tell, and I love you. Once I pitied your sorrow. But now, were you sorrowless, without fear or any lack, were you the blissful queen of Gondor, still I would love you. Eowyn, do you not love me? Then the heart of Eowyn changed, or else at last she understood it, and suddenly her winter passed and the sun shone on her. I stand in Minas Arnor, the Tower of the Sun, she said, and behold, the shadow has departed. I will be a shield maiden no longer, nor vie, with any, nor vie with the great riders, nor take joy only in the songs of slaying. I will be a healer, and love all things that grow and are not barren. And again she looked at Faramir. No longer do I desire to be a queen, she said. Then Faramir laughed merrily. That is well, he said, for I am not a king. Yet I will wed with the white lady of Rohan, if it be her will. And if she will, then let us cross the river, and in happier days let us dwell in Ferrothilion, and there make a garden. All things will grow with joy there if the white lady comes. Then must I leave my own people, man of Gondor, she said, and would you have your proud folk say of you, there goes a lord who tamed a wild shield maiden of the north, was there no woman of the race of Numenor to choose? I would, said Faramir. And he took her in his arms, and he kissed her under the sunlit sky, and he cared not that they stood high upon the walls in the sight of many. And many indeed saw them and the light that shone about them as they came down from the walls and went hand in hand to the houses of healing. I love, love the playfulness of Eowyn here, right? Her heart has changed. She is released from the shadow. She stands here in Minas Honor, the Tower of the Sun, and behold, the shadow has departed. She has... Her heart has changed or she has caught up with her heart. Like one of these two, th the narrative makes very clear Then the heart of Eowyn changed or else at last she understood it and suddenly her winter passed and the sun shone on her. I'm inclined to read this as a moment of understanding rather than a moment of transformation. I don't think that she has changed in this moment. I think she realizes that she has changed. This is foreshadowed all the way through this section, as I said, with her claiming first to still be under, well, claiming first to, to want death immediately, then claiming that she is still under the effect of the shadow, then realizing that she is actually on the brink potentially of something greater, and now finding herself conflicted, finding herself in this space. I love Eowyn's characterization, the strength of Eowyn throughout this passage. This is the point at which we get the traditional court love story, right? This is Arthurian romance right here. This is two people of, of highest possible, well, okay, not highest possible birth, but like second highest possible birth, right? The uh, the sister of the king of Rohan and the steward of Gondor now like making this, this romantic connection with each other. And Eowyn is still strong and strident, particularly in her language, right? So here they are. He comes up to her very gently in his Fatimidic fashion and says, Eowyn, why do you tarry here and not go rejoicing at Carmel and beyond Kyra Andros where your brother awaits you? Do you not know? She responds like, no flowery language, no, no courtesy, no excessive courtesy. Anyway, do you not know? And he's like, ah, well, okay, two reasons there may be, but which is true, I do not know, right? Charming Faramir, charming Faramir is charming. And she replies, I do not wish to play at riddles. Speak plainer. Like, Boom, flat, focus, there, I'm not playing your damn game, Faramir, what are you saying? And he says, okay, A, you would not be happy to see Aragorn right now because the request for your presence didn't come from him, it came from your brother, and seeing Aragorn again, even now, would hurt you, this would be a bad thing for you, or, or, maybe it's because I'm here and you're kind of into me. Are you kind of into me, Eowyn? Like, Eowyn, do you not love me or will you not? Do you not love me? Which would be a perfectly valid thing, right? If you don't love me, that's totally cool. That is chill. I will back away. That is fine. Do you not love me or can you not love me? 
And she replies, I wish to be loved by another, but I desire no man's pity. And Faramir calls it here. Yeah, you wanted Aragorn's love. And when he didn't have love to give you and offered you instead gentleness and kindness and pity, what you decided was that you would rather die. You decided that you would rather have nothing at all. You closed yourself off. That is Eowyn's story. That is the tragedy of Eowyn here, right? But when he gave you only understanding and pity, then you desire to have nothing unless a brave death in battle. Look at me. Do not scorn pity that is the gift of a gentle heart. That's just good advice, right? He's not saying, hey, you got to check your behavior here, right? Do not scorn pity that is the gift of a gentle heart. He is saying, this is just wisdom. That that Pity from a gentle heart is one of the best things that there can be, one of the most virtuous and pure things that there can possibly be. Do not scorn that. This is Aragorn being great and magnificent. He is being kingly to you in difficult circumstances, right? I'm sorry that he doesn't love you. He is sorry that he doesn't love you. He expressed as much, but he doesn't. And in the place of that love, he's still offering you kindness and pity. And she doesn't want it, right? Again, Eowyn taking a very modern perspective on pity here. Eowyn not wanting pity, not wanting to be reduced in stature by by the receipt of pity, even though, as we've discussed a thousand times here and there and back again, well, this is, what, episode 69, so I guess <laughs> 60 times at least we've discussed here and there and back again. That is not what pity is. That is not the heart of pity. That is a very modern concept of, of pity. But... Faramir changes track here and says, okay, but you don't have my pity. You did once. When we met, I pitied you. I found your your beauty and your sorrow, your beauty and your grief, your your beauty and the, the shadow that was laid over you. That is an intoxicating combination here, a combination here in the world of Professor Tolkien. Let me tell you, Eowyn, I was super into you for that. But now, now, if you had nothing wrong, if, if there was nothing wrong... Um, were you sorrowless without fear or any lack? Were you the blissful queen of Gondor? Still, I would love you. Hey, if you were the blissful queen, how do you get to be the blissful queen of Gondor, by the way? Oh, that would be if Aragorn loved you back, right? That's what he's saying there. Um, if you were sorrowless without fear or any lack, were you the blissful queen of Gondor? If you and Aragorn were crazy about each other and got married, that would be fantastic. And I would still love you. I might like love actually stand outside your door with like a bunch of, of cards upon which I have written like horribly manipulative things to try and get you to make out with me in the street just one time, just one time. That would be a thing that I would do. But then I'd go off and get caught in a zombie apocalypse in Georgia or someplace. So, you know, it would all kind of wash out. Anyway, weird bit of criticism of love actually there. Um, but it doesn't matter. Even if you got everything that you wanted, I would love you still. This is not about pity. And in that moment, Eowyn is freed. She doesn't have to fight back against this idea that she is being pitied. She doesn't have to fight back against the idea that she is being subjugated by the awesomeness of Faramir, right? This is not about Faramir. It is just about her. He is sincerely saying, actually, I just love you. Actually, I'm just crazy about you. This is where we are. Then the heart of Eowyn changed, or uh, else at last she understood it. And suddenly her winter passed, and the sun shone on her. I stand in Minas Honor, uh, the Tower of the Sun, and behold, the, sh the shadow has departed. Gosh, I'm getting tangled up here. I will be a shield maiden no longer, nor vie with the great writers, nor take joy only in the songs of slaying. You'll note that only, by the way, nor take joy only in the songs of slaying. I am still going to like a good slaying song from time to time, right? On my birthday, like... We'll, we'll throw a, a pool party in the summer out there in Athelion. It's going to be great. We'll get together. We'll sing some songs of slaying. Like, of course we will. But I'm going to like other things too. That's where I am. I will be a healer and love all things that grow and are not barren. No longer do I desire to be a queen, she said. Right? That transition there. That transition there, no longer do I desire to be a queen, I think is her acknowledging, actually, yes, I do love you. Right? Because that does not go with the other things. She doesn't want the glory of being 
the queen. She doesn't want that is when, when she's talking about Aragorn and she's talking about what she wants from the world. Actual like glory and position is not her thing. She doesn't want to be the queen of Gondor. That has never been a thing that Eowyn has has claimed to desire. So I read that as being the turning point, right? This is, um, uh, let me let me find the actual passage here. Yeah, all things grown and not barren. And again, she looked at Faramir. No longer do I desire to be a queen, she said. I am not, I don't want Aragorn. And I do want you. Because as Faramir confirms, that as well, for I am not a king. Yet I will wed with the White Lady of Rohan if it be her will. And if she will, let us cross the river and in happier days let us dwell in Ferrothilion and there make a garden. There make a garden. Us. Both of us together. Like you, Eowyn, I am going to turn my back on swordsmanship and on combat and on, on matters military and martial. I am going to go and be a gardener and a healer in Athelion, as should we all. That is what we all ought to do at this point. All things will grow with joy there if the White Lady comes. And then we get this brilliant, this this bit of, of banter from Eowyn. Then must I leave my own people, man of Gondor, she says, right? This, this, this really charming impudence, right? Must I leave my own people, man of Gondor? And would you have your proud folk save you? There goes the lord who tamed a wild shield maiden of the north. Was there no woman of the race of Numenor to choose? And Faramir's just like, yes, yes, actually I would do that. Yes, I would. And he took her in his arms and he kissed her under the sunlit sky and he cared not that they stood high upon the walls in the sight of many. And then of course they come down into the houses of healing and he informs the warden of the houses of healing that at last Eowyn is healed. I have not been keeping track of the chat. I have no idea what you guys think about everything that I have been saying over the last 20 minutes here to get. Uh, yes, good. <laughs> oh, the Love Actually reference was was caught. Good, okay. <laughs> oh, Skeepa's in the chat. Hey, Skeepa, I didn't see you show up earlier. That's wonderful. Excellent. Glad to see you. Uh, okay, that is going to be it. I'm actually well past my heart out for this session. Uh, guys, this has been wonderful this has been delightful i am sure that we will revisit faramir and eowyn very swiftly at the beginning of next week's session we are then going to finish up um we're going to get the crowning of king lsr of course and we're going to get uh the passing of the fellowship and we're going to get the the leaving of minas Tirith, and then hopefully we'll move into chapters six and seven many partings and homeward bound both of which are short chapters so maybe we'll do the rest of chapter five and chapter six and chapter seven next week that is thursday july the 19th 10 p.m eastern 9 p.m central back to our evening time slot next week for the rest of chapter five chapter six and chapter seven i know that's very ambitious but six and seven are really short chapters so uh we'll see what we can do with all of that guys it has been an absolute pleasure thank you so so much for joining me i hope you all have a fabulous day and i will see you all next week until then fly you fools